0: Hi, this is Jesslyn Etchell, and I'm chatting with some of my favorite women in a series called Wildish Wise Women, Conversations with Everyday Goddesses. It's my passion to connect women and remind us that supporting one another is our greatest strength. These discussions are an extension of the in-person women's circles I lead in the Bay Area, and will explore a variety of topics. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm talking to Lise Porter, and Lise is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's a national trainer for mental health first aid, and she's currently living in Los Angeles and working as an actor. Lise just released a new book called Own Your Life, How Our Wounds Become Our Gifts, and that will be our topic that we will explore today. So welcome, Lise.
1: Thank you, Jess.
0: All right, well, we'll just take a minute to connect to one another and to anyone else that's listening that wants to join in before we launch into this really rich topic. So we'll just take a few moments to take some deep breaths. So an inhale through the nose and exhale out the mouth. Just enjoy a couple more breaths like that. may each woman who needs the wisdom of this call find her way here. May we speak from the heart and create a wave of peace that radiates out on a global level. And may each woman remember her sacred nature and feel the value of her presence in this world. Lise, what is your favorite thing about being a woman?
1: Oh, I was just thinking about your prayer. Um, and how important it is that we feel our worth. Um, Favorite thing about being a woman, I think would be my intuition. Not that men aren't intuitive, but I feel that by having the female gender, I'm more allowed to actualize and express my intuition um, and that's been, uh, an important tool in my life.
0: We have a whole podcast on intuition as well. So that's a great answer because we do as women get a little bit more permission to express that side of ourselves. So I'm really excited to talk about your book, but first I would just love if you could tell your version today, the iteration of how this book was born right now Because I know, and I've known you for a while, we work together, a book has been wanting to come through you for for some time.
1: In my acknowledgments, uh, I write that I've wanted to write a book since my mother first put one in my hands.
0: I've
1: I've always wanted to write uh, from the time I learned to read. Um, But this particular book, was a five year process. And actually, someone asked me the same question in another podcast. And I had been working on a different book prior to that, dealing with women. And when I completed uh, a couple different drafts of that other project, it just didn't seem fully baked for the commercial market. And I put it aside and I felt very defeated. And then my mother died by suicide, and I started to write a ton related to that experience and to my relationship with my mother. And then I kind of put that aside and started thinking about a new book, and I wasn't certain whether it was going to be a memoir about my mother and I, or if it was going to be a book on healing. And the initial drafts had a lot of cross-pollination between those two genres and that's why it took so long to write because I realized I was trying to say too much across two different genres uh, of literature and I had to pull out material and revise material and I ultimately made it more of a self-help book although it is framed by my mother's suicide but it's not about my mother's suicide and it's not memoir by any means. It's really how do we move through difficult life experiences, metabolize them, uh, withstand them, and then ultimately transcend them. And it doesn't have to be a trauma. It can be having a baby, getting married. It doesn't have to be a a disastrous experience. It can be a joyful experience that still can throw some curveballs at us.
0: Tell me a little bit about that first part, the Own Your Life. What, what does that mean to you?
1: So it's interesting that that's the title because the subtitle is more of a synopsis of this book's theme. So I'm going to kind of backtrack. Um, the subtitle is How Our Wounds Become Our Gifts. And that's, in many ways, kind of self-explanatory. How How do the very things that create a wound or a a hardship um, ultimately become a part of us that can be for good not to say that you know I would wish a rape or a shooting or a family death on anybody's life but are there any Pieces of gold to mind from the lessons we learn in the healing process. The own your life part is about not trying to get rid of our life experiences and our histories. Mm. It, it, you know, we, we have to embrace the good, the bad, the ugly, everything that makes up our narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we try to get rid of that, We lose invaluable opportunities for authenticity, and it's just you you can't separate. Um, You're cutting off a part of yourself if you do, and that's really where the title came from. I was taking a class when I was in graduate school, and somebody said, when do the wounds ever heal? And the teacher said, you never want to get rid of your wound. Your wound is your gift.
0: And, and have you observed that in other people at, throughout their healing? Because I know, obviously, you've worked with a lot of people in different areas of their life and stages and, and phases as a therapist. Did you find that people were trying to sort of get rid of the painful parts of themselves?
1: Yes. Most of us just want to erase, we want to have a lobotomy and get <laughs> things that have happened to us. And wouldn't that be nice? It's like that movie, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you know, if we could just, you know, erase. Um, but I think a lot of times, yes, we want to get rid of what's not perfect or what feels damaged within us. And I think of healing as, as not about necessarily Going from broken to whole, but more that we are inherently whole, things happen to us that are like having mud thrown onto a pearl, and then you have to clean up the mud and kind of rub it off and get back to that whole you know that whole self mm-hmm. um, but I also think of it. I remember taking an acting class and the teach and it was a, acting for the camera, so we always could watch the playbacks and the teacher said. What compels us when we're watching great actors is their mess, their tears, the neurosis, the, just the, the, the mess. That's what makes us riveted to somebody's performance. It's not the stylized mannequin perfection performance that draws us in. It's the very human aspects of us. And I think that's part of this own your life and likewise really own it instead of saying, Oh, this happened to me. And thus my life has to always be this way. If we own it, we can actually change the story.
0: Yeah. Tell me about that. Is that changing from like victim mentality to, to something different?
1: Yes. And and that's a key thrust of the book. I, I do a lot of, examining how we can be very present with pain and not dismiss it not negate it not be Pollyanna Mm. not say oh just think happy thoughts and all will be great because I don't think healing works that way I think it's much more complex but I also think there's danger in. Becoming too caught up in our narrative or so identifying a feeling that we become the feeling. And this is really tricky, particularly for trauma survivors, because if we tell somebody to be over it, just move on, and they're not ready to, or their trauma has never been witnessed and fully acknowledged, we're actually doing a person a gross disservice. So it's healing is not for the faint of heart and it's not. Simple. As you know, it's very sophisticated. It's simple on some levels, but on other levels, it's complicated because our neurology is involved, our muscle memory, just every aspect of ourselves is wrapped up in. Yeah, landscape.
0: when you give that sweet metaphor, which I absolutely love of the pearl with the mud, it seems like, okay, I get it. But then how do we clean that off?
1: (laughs) That's the complicated part, right? (laughs) That's the complicated part. And in many ways, we have to do that cleaning on a daily basis, not not even Mm -hmm. from uh, wounds, but just the day to day stresses that we accumulate. Um, If we don't do a constant Kind of psychic cleanse, physical cleanse, whatever you want to call it, will just bust up from the level of stimuli that's coming at us day by day, you know day by day, whether it's traffic, arguing, email.
0: I always say meditation is what does that it kind of clears out all the dust and the cobwebs if you do it on a daily basis.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and actually, I address a number of important concepts like mindfulness and breathing. And uh, I think those are vital for healing.
0: Yeah. So how else are you practicing this besides maybe those few things?
1: You know, that's a great question. For years, I have had a yoga practice and a meditation practice. And we were talking about swimming earlier, mm-hmm. but, but really I think that returning to acting um, is what's helping me move forward because acting is very joyous and I think part of how we bust through stress and stuckness is by tapping into pleasure and joy um, and I just really get a lot of joy out of the creative process. And I, and I see myself reflected back, as well, in the playback. And I see somebody that I don't always acknowledge. It's kind of funny. It's like, oh. It, it, you know. It's almost like when, you, when a cat looks in the mirror or a dog looks in the mirror, <laughs> and they're perplexed by the image that they're seeing. Um, there's something about the performing arts where it, you get a mirror back, back to aspects of yourself. It's really interesting. Nice.
0: I love that you say that pleasure and joy and connecting to that has such a healing component to it because I completely agree. That's so lovely.
1: Yeah, life is so hard. I was talking to two people last week and, you know, just really sad life circumstances that just suddenly happened out of the blue. And um, we just have to grab the joy where we can find it because there'll be plenty of painful reality to contend with
0: yeah and you made mention of that um your mother dying by suicide, and um, of course the things that came before and the things that came after her death for you. What's some ways that you got through that that I'm sure you talk about in the book that that you feel you could share right now
1: actually, that's a great question, and I don't address it so much in the book uh I think the memoir would really get more at that, but okay. um really the period leading up to her death was very painful she had developed a dependence on alcohol from the time i was pretty young but i do have strong memories of her not being addicted to alcohol and being very present so i often equate it to like watching someone with alzheimers you know you you have this memory of somebody who was in one persona or or way of being and suddenly you're losing them right before your eyes so in many ways it was a slow death it was a death of you know many many years and then she was incarcerated for five felony duis so she had five different periods of incarcerations for those different duis Mm -hmm. and that was like a death because when a family member goes to prison you can't see them unless you're visiting behind a glass wall and there's limitations and they don't come home for the holidays and you have to deal with their apartment or not deal with their apartment and their finances. And um, so it was like many, many deaths. And and then you think that you're ready for this kind of loss because there's been some foreshadowing of it. She had had a suicide attempt 12 years prior to her actual death. And nothing prepares you for the call. Uh, it just, yeah. nothing. Um, and then in my case, there was a strange peace that came over me after her death, while at the same time, a lot of grieving. Um, and I address a few pieces where that happened, uh, why I felt at peace. Um, but I have to be very careful not to make it sound as if, oh, if somebody dies who's been struggling, it's a relief. Um, it's just that I had some closure and resolution with my mother vis-a-vis what I perceived the afterlife that allowed me to connect with her in a way I hadn't been able to connect when she was in so much pain. But now we're getting into views on the afterlife and all of that.
0: Yeah, I think most of the people that listen are fairly open, but that's nice that it had that effect for you. You know, it was probably a really unique experience that that was for you and for her.
1: Yeah, I I actually have had many what I would call visitations or encounters from her um, that have been radically transformational and healing, and I think have allowed me to own my life and embrace my life. I think my mom ultimately wanted to me to reclaim some of what I just wasn't able to fully embrace um, when I was so worried about her, and also about my father. My father had addiction issues, and that's a whole nother story, which I address a few little pieces about my father in the book, but I Again, that, that would be another story.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like you have a whole, a whole lot to offer, and it's so exciting that you've got this into the world, and I imagine there'll be a lot more to follow.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's a process, and I found that the writing came out of periods of solitude and deep reflection, and right now I'm in an art form that's so much more collaborative and active with acting, that i think how did i ever write that book i don't seem to have the batches of time that i used to create for myself but i th- but i believe when when the impulse to say something starts to bubble up. We just make the time and we just do it. It just, it's, I don't want to say it's a compulsion, but it is. It's just, I have to say this. It just has to be said. So.
0: Yeah. And I think we have seasons of our lives where we're much more active and and then have more time for quiet. We'll see the flow change again, maybe.
1: Absolutely. And that is a point that I make in the book that we have to respect these different seasons of our lives. And that if we're always in an active, go, 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 produce, produce mode, there's no room for inner transformation and healing and redirection. And it's, it's vital when we're going through deep loss and deep change that there's some intrapsychic space. Mm -hmm. I like that word. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I think it's impossible to ask people to transform when they're Operating like a rat on a wheel and in just survival mode, Um, it it, it just doesn't. It's survival mode. It's not thriving mode.
0: Right. Yeah. So that leads me to ask, um, and I think you're kind of getting there with some of this stuff right now, but I'm sure you have more to add. Is that why? Why do you think that that people struggle to? um, I don't want to say get over stuff and move on, but to heal, to really heal from traumatic things that have happened in their life and to perhaps like you said it doesn't have to be traumatic but just you know the the changes and the ups and downs that life throws at us
1: i think there are many reasons uh and that's a fabulous question i I think a primary one is our culture doesn't know how to do it nor does our culture supporter make space for it Mm. um so you mentioned that i'm a trainer for uh, mental health first aid i teach a, a a public curriculum all over the country, but I actually certify people to teach the course, and I engage with my group for a five-day process. So I've talked to numbers and numbers of people around the country from different walks of life, different professions, different life situations, and it just seems to be a general theme that as a culture we're lacking in emotional literacy and psychological literacy. And I think this is a byproduct of the information age, of materialism, of really long work days, a a whole host of things, breakdown of community. Um, But we now expect the human being to be more like a machine. And if you think about simply death, in the olden days, if there was a death in the family, you would go into mourning for a year and you would wear black to indicate that you were in this state of mourning. And now if there's a death in the family, you get three days off from work to set up a funeral, deal with all the ins and outs of it and try to process something. That's just not realistic. And so of course we're going to start popping pills and self-medicating if there's no space. Now I'm not making a statement about medication either, Medication can be vital for people and for certain mental illnesses, but no pill's going to take away the grief of having all your family members killed in an automobile accident. So I, I think we're just lacking basic tools for how to heal, how to f- express feelings, let them go, how to reach out for support. And people don't know what to do to support other people. If, if you fall down and skin your knee, most people will rush up and offer you a Band-Aid. But if somebody starts crying on the subway or at church or in the grocery store, a lot of people will just kind of back away and just, oh, she's crazy or, oh, I don't want to intrude. And so there's this isolation and disconnection that I think people feel. So I think that's a very complex question and I think it's kind of a first world problem. We have all these wonderful resources and some of our basic needs met and yet people are living in increasingly isolated um, circumstances.
0: I just thought about myself, I'm sitting in my townhouse all alone with my cat and I only know one of my neighbors.
1: Okay. So, you
0: know, I, I feel that for sure. We don't we don't know the people around us and if something happened I you know it would be yeah, I wouldn't know who to reach out to in my immediate vicinity, not like a long time ago when you'd live communally.
1: Right. So I actually have a chapter called Restoring Connections and a chapter called Leaning into Community. Um and I I actually think it's really important to know the neighbors and that type of thing. And I, I think I, I, and I address this very openly in the book. I'm single. I've never been married and I don't have children. And both of my parents are deceased and I only have a half sibling who I didn't meet until I was an adult. And so I've had to forge connections with the immediate people around me. And I see how, how important this is really for everybody to just do, do do know who your neighbors are, you know, maybe bake some cookies or have a little block party or drink night, or I had, I had one wonderful neighbors in San Diego who every year did a pumpkin carving thing for the whole neighborhood. It just didn't matter um, because we, we do have a breakdown in that type of um, life experience. And I think the elderly take a serious hit. I think single people take a hit. I think young children and teens who, in the olden days, we called it, were latchkey kids. I don't know what the term would be now. Yeah, I said
0: that to someone the other day and they didn't know, but I'm familiar with that term.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we just really need connection and we have to to find it wherever we can. You know, I'm grateful for a chat with somebody at the YMCA that I see swimming each morning or the people who run the market up the street or um, these, these are important relationships. They're, they're not the same as our primary ones, but they're still important. And you know that, uh, you know, our experience working in various institutions, um, the kind of, wonderful sense of um, family that would emerge just from being with the same people every day in that context.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Both your coworkers and, and the clients. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that this is at least part, in part, what it means to, to own your life and to, to take, you know, kind of what you need, not in a, like, I'm going to take it all, but in, you know, to interact with your community and to, um, to reach out when you need it.
1: Yeah, I very much uh, talk about how we have to learn to love ourselves when there's just nobody. And sometimes we can have somebody right next to us and they just miss miss the boat. You know, they just don't meet our needs. Um, But then beyond learning to love ourselves, how do we extend out to others? And I make the point in one of my chapters, it can be very frustrating when you're the one that's had the extreme loss. And yet the only way you can get connection is to turn around and give to someone else. And that can seem so unfair. Like why should I have to give, you know, I'm the one that someone should be bringing a casserole to, or I'm the one that somebody should be checking in with. But When it comes down to it, we're all pretty self-absorbed and busy, and sometimes we just have to be the bigger person and reach out, because ultimately what happens is it's an exchange of giving and receiving that becomes like the inhalation and the exhalation. Mm -hmm. And I do think owning your life is about, at times, really reaching out to others, and at other times it's saying, I don't have to be liked by everybody, or I'm going to be my own best cheerleader, I think it's different things at different points in time.
0: I like that. There's the ebb and flow of life again.
1: <laughs> right, right. These seasons where where we have profound connection and community and everything's going great, and then these other periods where everything couldn't be more calamitous and isolating and frustrating. And, and I think that's where we have to be careful to not get on the pity pot and... Um, to experience the full weight of the emotion, but keep our mind somewhat fresh and optimistic—it it's, 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 is a practice. That's why we call things a practice. It's—it's—it's mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of emotional flexibility or elasticity is an art form that we never fully master. Oh,
0: I like that. I so you touched on something that comes up again and again as I speak to so many different wonderful women that I know in my life, and that's about loving ourselves, and, and we talked in the very beginning about, um, you know, just seeing our worth, and, and so I know you said you had a, something for women out there that's on the back burner maybe to be uh, reignited in the future, but what, what do you have to say on that from your own experience and practices?
1: So I'll answer the first part, just basic uh, summary on learning to love ourselves, and then I'll address more specifically for women. Um, So there's a chapter in my book called Becoming One's Own Beloved, Um, and I talk about how it's really tricky. They say we have to love ourselves before we're loved, but come on, we're relational creatures and we learn about love through our caretakers. So it's a real complex concept. You know, we can't exist completely alone because we're interrelational, and yet people can certainly let us down and betray us and hurt us. Um, so I, I think that self-love comes in really small acts and practices. Um, and I, I'm, I'm kind of bold, and I say at one point, you know, self-love isn't – buying a pretty dress or an orgasm or drinking that glass of Chardonnay. Not that all those things aren't wonderful and can be a way to pamper ourselves. But self-love is just really being with ourselves through the thick and the thin um, when we are on the floor weeping and wailing and pulling our hair out and and somehow still showing up for ourselves. And I, I don't know how we teach that. I, I, I think for some it comes through spirituality and believing that something higher loves us. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I think women really struggle with it. I think we live in a patriarchal society that teaches us that we're the second sex. And um, there's just so many ways this permeates the female experience. Um, I heard a wonderful comment the other day by Jill Soloway, who's the creator of transparent and she's created this wonderful new series called I Love Dick and there's a, a line in the show itself where one of the male characters says to a female artist you're a woman your art will always be an expression of your oppression and he said it in a kind of condescending way but there's a stark reality in that that women are constantly battling oppression And it informs one's experience. And it doesn't mean that we can't smash through that. But I think it is just, it's just part of being a woman. Um, It's funny when you asked me the question at the beginning of the interview what do I love about being a woman? For years, I would have said, I had so many answers for you. And I think as I'm getting older and seeing, Some of the pitfalls that we fall into, I just joke, in my next life, I want to be a man. Not that I don't love being a woman. (laughs) Some of the bullshit that we put up with Mm -hmm. year after year you know that doesn't seem to be going away is is pretty mind-boggling. So I do think at some point I need to write a book specifically for women. But women aren't the only ones that struggle with a sense of worth. I think men do as well. Um, finding our value independent of how much money we make, what skills and talents we have, whether we're beautiful or not. Um, worth is not, is not about the adjectives. It's, it's about our essence. And, um, that too is a practice owning, owning the essence, embracing that it's, it's a spiritual path. I don't, I don't know how to do it if you, without that.
0: Well, oh, I love the take that you said. It just kind of comes in little bits and pieces and that we have to walk that path. I think you're right. I mean, there's, there's no easy answer. There's no, as we say in the therapy room sometimes, like, if I could wave a magic wand and <laughs> right. make this thing better or, as you said, a lobotomy to take away the memory or, our, you know, our beliefs about ourselves, maybe we do it, maybe we wouldn't, but we certainly don't have access to that kind of magic.
1: No, and I think that's partly why I wrote the book. I, I didn't want to write a book about mental illness, diagnoses, and about seven steps to blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. I wanted to write a book that showed this is, this is a journey. You know, this is a, a, this is a process, and that somehow our culture has come to believe that it's not that it's a quick fix and instead it's more like a wonderful movie that has these different scenes. And sometimes the movie takes these twists and turns and conflicts. And then sometimes the movie has these delightful moments and the romantic encounter. And like, it's, it's just life is more complicated than a formula.
0: Yeah. Or the seven <laughs> steps.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So, You've already given so many gems. I really love what you've had to share so far. But if someone out there is just really struggling right now through one of those dips in life and and the outcome looks kind of bleak, um, what kind of little pearl of hope could you offer to that person?
1: Yeah, I think two things. Uh, Reach out. I think a lot of people are afraid to reach out. They're afraid of being vulnerable. They're afraid of imposing on somebody else. They're afraid of looking like they're cracking up or breaking down. And I know that that reaching out is what sustained and healed me. Even though it was messy, and I'm sure to many people I came off as needy and that I may have burned some bridges or exhausted some people, Learning that I was loved and that my life mattered and that people were and are there for me, I think, is really important when everything just seems very dark. Um, People do want to help, but sometimes you have to send them an SOS flare. So being your own patient advocate in a way. Um, And then I think the other thing is to find what really turns you on. And I, I actually am going to hopefully be giving a TED talk, and I, I want to address somehow something along this theme. Um, there has to be something that propels us out of bed each morning that's that's constant, that's, that's there no matter what. And we could say it's a person or a relationship or our children – our our spouses and and maybe that that holds but the reality is everything in life is is impermanent but if there's one thing that we can rely on internally that's not so based on the external for me it's art but i think everybody finds a different thing but finding that life force pulse that that just pushes us through no matter what's going on. I
0: love, I love it. it. Thank, Thank you, you for sure. So is there anything else that we didn't get to cover? Anything that feels really important for you to share? I thought those were really great gems to, to wrap up with, but if there's anything else that sort of wants to come through for folks to hear from you at this time.
1: Um, I think maybe I'll put in a plug for for boredom, and I don't know why that's crossing my mind right now, but I talk about um, wonderful new forms come out of empty space, and we in our culture tend to want to avoid feeling lonely, feeling bored, and I'll never forget reading an essay. I think it was by Anna Quindlin, and it was in Time or Newsweek, and it was a little essay at the back of the magazine, and she was bemoaning the fact that, her children or the children in today's world in america are hyper scheduled and never get never have moments of being bored and how she loved in the summertime that she and her brothers and sisters would sometimes be bored and when they were bored then they had to go play a game or go outside or draw or read or or just look up the clouds and um I think it's okay to be bored. (laughs) I think it's okay to be in an impasse occasionally. Again, it's not the juicy, fun parts of our lives, but I do think that's part of um, learning what the next thing is. Uh, Maybe we can close with this metaphor. When you look at the ocean, uh, before a wave starts to uh, crest or swell, before the swell comes in, it's just kind of flat. And, and then it slowly starts to build, and um, those those periods of flatness of boredom of the unknown um, are, are really key because that's when the next wave is coming behind you know behind that um, behind that
0: yeah, and I you'd never there. know by looking out that something was coming
1: right right, but when you surf and you sit out on your board, you learn to watch that horizon and you start to sense when when the, when it's going to change. And, um, so, so yeah, just, just watching the tide, watching the wave, um, because it will change. It will, it, it will have a transformation and its own ebb and flow.
0: Awesome. Well, I do have a couple things just to ask you for fun to to wrap up. Sure, sure. I'll see if I can find that Anna Quindlin article, but uh, what's one book that changed your life?
1: Um, It's funny. I am a prolific reader, and there are many books, but the one that's coming to mind right now, I actually mention in my book. It's an acting text called uh, Intent to Live by Larry Moss. I don't know that it would interest anybody who's not an actor because it's definitely about acting technique. But that said, he talks a lot about passion and he talks about an acting concept, you know, what's the character's objective, what do they want, and what's the obstacle. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing to think about in your own life. What, what is the primary thing driving you? What is your super objective, and what is getting in the way? And that, I don't know, that book just kind of woke me up from um, a deep slumber for some reason. Nice. Uh, yeah.
0: And what about a favorite yoga pose?
1: Hmm. I I don't necessarily like the yoga poses, but they are they like me. They're good for me. Um, I think the the downward dog, I don't like it, but it really helps stretch out my neck and back. Yoga for me is like eating vegetables. I now really like vegetables, but there was a time in my life when I didn't, and I just had to make myself eat my vegetables, and that's yoga for me. I don't always want to get out my mat and do it, but... It, it, it's just not, I don't, it's, it's not a choice anymore. <laughs> it's just, I have to do it.
0: Oh, well, I love the way that you embrace it because of the impact it has on your body, even if you don't love it so much.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do love it, but, but it, I, I can't say it's always fun. I, uh, I, I, I actually said to my yoga teacher the other day, why does this hurt so much? I dance, I swim, I hike, I don't understand, why is this so hard? And she said, you know, it's just different muscles, different. And we also sit a lot at our computers and desks. And um, I think some of the pain that some of us feel in the poses is from um, too much of sitting at the computer. It's just really not, it's not the way our bodies were designed to sit so much.
0: Yeah, yeah. for sure. And the yes. last question is who inspires you, Lise?
1: You know, it's funny. I, I listened to one of your podcasts, and I heard you ask this question. And and um, the person who came to mind last night when I was listening is the same person that comes to mind again. So, I, I have a friend who's a cinematographer. I've known him for about fifteen years. He's he's an older uh, person, you know, so uh, kind of like a friend, father figure, and he has just believed in in my wanting to move to L.A. and pursue this. And I think that that those people who support our dreams when other people think our dreams are silly or unrealistic or childish or irresponsible, those people that believe in our, our most sacred dreams when nobody else is doing so um, are invaluable. So this particular person, just a, an artist friend who... Uh, for whatever reason, doesn't think you know that I've run off to the circus to pursue a career in film. Um, it's 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 really
0: encouraging. <laughs> oh, how lovely! <laughs> you know, well, as much as it is important to to love ourselves and to have our own worth and and to to pack, practice that fully, um, you know, what? it really is lovely to have someone else be in our corner as well.
1: Oh, it's so it's so wonderful you know, somebody applauds for them or goes to their soccer game or, you know, smiles at them when they do a dive off the diving board. We all need that. It's so important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your book. I'm so, so excited that it's out in the world for people to read and learn from. And I will link, um, all the ways that people can get in touch with you, including being able to buy your book.
1: Wonderful. And I'm going to be doing, um, a little class on unblocking creativity and it may be available on the web. So if, if, uh, if that happens, it'll be on my website or on my Facebook or whatever. Excellent.
0: Well, that sounds awesome. I look forward to hearing about that and and possibly a Ted talk in the
1: future. Yes. Yes. Jess, thanks so much.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Lise. Have a great day.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Okay.
0: Bye-bye.